Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well I must confess I've been living out of a suitcase for several weeks now already which was highlighted to me uh, last night when a US uh, sorry USA based property manager uh, started chuckling when he called me and uh, he asked me where I was and what time it was. I, I was in the pub actually as it happens um, but um, he, he wasn't aware of the time difference. Uh, he, he then said that I've spoken to you about three or four times over the past couple of weeks and you've been in Brazil, a couple of US cities and now the UK. <laughs> so uh, he was a bit lost really as to best time to call me I suppose but um, I guess you could say that my agenda and body clock is a little bit out of kilter right now. And as a result, I am literally recording today's podcast on the morning before my producer gets into work, (laughs) uh, which is cutting it fine even by my standards, I have to tell you. There we go. Uh, So today I wanted to share a little bit about my day out on site yesterday and perhaps looking forward to my day out on site today as well. Um, as I've been out on the road a bit with some of the members of my community. And I just wanted to give you something of a fly-on-the-wall insight into how that went or how I hope it's going to go today, really. So uh, here we go right now with that. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Yeah, so um, it's a bit of a road trip, actually. Um, Yesterday being Monday and today Tuesday. Um, I've, I've had a mixture of attendees who have joined me. I've had uh, three of the apprent- three of the four apprentices who could join me. So I had Dominic with his partner Lisa, uh, Richard and Sean who, who were with me uh, all of yesterday and some of which are with me today. I had uh, two Earn and Learn investor partners, um, one of which is John who was with me for both days and the other one is Damien who will only be with me today. And one private investor, which is Ian, and my who was only with me yesterday, not today, and my project manager Phil, who is consistent throughout. So, a bit of a, a mixture, really, of people who who were joining me on on these trips. And so, you know, the first visit was yesterday, and that was in Stoke-on-Trent, and we were able to concentrate. Uh, we actually managed to see four sites during the day, in in and around Stoke-on-Trent, uh, three of which are effectively my current projects at various stages and one of which is a potential project that uh, my project manager wanted to share with me. So just a little bit about them. Um, so we have the first one we went to see. I wanted to show a balance actually of uh, projects at different phases. So one at the early stages, one at a middle stage and one at the end. Although I didn't actually share them in that particular sequence. So the first one we went to go to is a project we call Coronation Court and that's a commercial conversion project in Stoke-on-Trent as you might have gathered and um, it was a former pottery office building essentially and uh, we're turning it into 11 units it'll be 10 residential and one one office uh, once it's been completed. Um, I paid I'll just give you some rough numbers so you got a feel for it I paid about 250,000 pounds for it 
all phases there are actually three phases i'm combining phase one and two and then phase three i'll do later once i've refinanced out phase one and two and i've got a bit of money in my back pocket and be able to go again and fund phase three uh, which is also subject to additional planning so i bought the property with existing planning for the 11 units and that effectively forms phases one and two and the reason for one and two is there's an existing conversion but there's also an extension that needs to be rebuilt so bit of bit of new build that goes on there so that's actually phase two but i'm doing those two elements together the um the gross development cost of all three phases is uh is eight hundred and thirty thousand, and the gross development value is just under a million so that gives you a bit of a flavor or an insight if you like into that kind of project and um my intention is to do a brr or a, or a buy to rent buy refurbish refinance or buy uh, sorry build to rent uh, this particular project because essentially I want to keep these in my portfolio and um, what would be ideal is uh, we've had a couple of people who've basically approached us and they're local in the area one of which is a housing association and the other one is a charity and they want to basically take the whole whole site from me uh, under an FRI lease or fully repairing and insuring lease which uh, which will be a long-term arrangement. Uh, they'll take care of any tenancy issues and uh, they'll pay me, they'll just pay me a fee. There, there will be no voids. There'll be no real maintenance to worry about during a long-term um, FRI lease arrangement. So I'm very keen on doing that. And uh, it'll just be sort of, even though there's 11 units, essentially I'll just be dealing with one party ultimately. And, you know, I did some numbers and essentially if I do that kind of route and uh, we're, we're, we're sort of fairly well on with the project now, certainly phases one and two. Um, so I've got a degree of confidence, I guess, with the numbers. They have changed <laughs> since we started, uh, which I'll kind of come on to. Um, but, you know, essentially once it's been refinanced out, I should be looking at something like a 40% return on my money that I'm leaving in probably end up leaving just under £100,000 in that project and making something like a 40% uh, net return. So uh, it's very good. And I have actually been approached to sell the units, um, but I don't really want to. Obviously, with that kind of return, you don't find that every single day. I have to stress that. Um, you know, this isn't an everyday type of project. Um, it's one that comes around now and again, and I was very happy to to take advantage of this one. But, you know, equally, when we're on site, um, the we noticed or the whilst we're walking around the project manager was taking us through it literally whilst we were there the ground workers were asking issue and an issue about removing a wall um, which they felt was slightly unstable it was part of what's supposed to be in the extension area and they were thinking of just taking it down but if they were to take it down that would actually open up the site and create a security issue which you know we don't really want to do at this stage because we're starting to put some sort of higher ticket value items into the properties the conversion is cracking on and we're you know we're going to be putting uh, more expensive things just even things like cabling and pipe work trust me people will look for that kind of thing so we didn't really want to do that so just literally whilst we were there we talked about underpinning just a small section of of uh, of a wall rather than removing the wall as, as a solution so what i'm trying to illustrate there is that on a site there are things that happen and you have to make decisions um you know almost a daily basis uh, fortunately i have a project manager who takes care of that kind of thing so he was able to do that and just effectively guide and advise what to do um when i'm not on site all the time so that was good and we wandered around and we also talked about you know there's things that other things that came out as we looked at this particular property for example um 
there's a lot of interdependencies. So we've got um, we've got the council as a as a sort of an interested party. So the planning department, of course, are going to play a role in in you know what we're doing essentially, what we can and can't do. But it's not just the council. Uh, there's also finance financiers, if if you like, particularly when we come to refinance. And um, you know, people talk about you know refinancing buy to let, but when you're looking at sort of more complex conversion projects as a developer, um, and the type of tenancy arrangements that I've got in place, it's you know it's a narrow for number of lenders that can actually get involved in in that particular uh, scenario. And in fact, some lenders' policy actually says they won't deal with the charity and maybe not even the housing association either. So. What actually strikes me as being a fantastic arrangement um, maybe strikes a lender as not being so attractive. And then similarly, the lenders have a policy on the size of the unit. So these are mostly one bedroom units. They're affordable housing, um, affordable rental um, housing. Uh, that I'm putting in, putting in there, uh, and they, they, you know they're not they're a bit tight, I guess, on space. So, a lot of lenders have minimum criteria in terms of the size of the of the unit. So we've had to do a little bit of a rejig, and there were going to be a number uh, more, uh, sorry, two bedroom units in the property, and one or two larger units. But we've kind of had to rejig the sizes to make sure there's at least you know 35 square meters essentially in all of the units, which will probably open us up to about 70 or 80% of the available lending market who would do this kind of uh, project. But as I mentioned, the complexity of the end um, tenancy uh, partner that we, we're going to engage with would perhaps narrow that down even more. So I'm quite keen on working with either the housing association or, or even the charity because uh, they're clearly providing um, housing for people in need. Um, some of them are quite vulnerable. And I think that'd be a good thing to do. <laughs> I'm a bit hamstrung, really, with um, the choice of lenders. But I'm going to persevere. And hopefully I'll manage to find, along with the help of my broker, uh, find a suitable um, finance partner who will be able to take those units on once they're completed. So it's a really nice project. Uh, I've been approached a number of times to sell the pri um, sell the development once, uh, once when I actually bought it and during the process of uh, development as well so obviously some demand and of course I've mentioned that there's a couple of people interested in renting it too. I guess the fallback position is basically I just rent all of the units out myself individually but um, I quite like the idea of not having all of the work of managing 11 separate tenancy arrangements and maybe having a single tenancy um, just strikes me as being pretty worthwhile and that's the, that's how the number 40% ROI actually comes in in a way um, because I have no voids and maintenance in the large part with this particular site. So that was the first one we went to see as I mentioned um, Coronation Court in Stoke-on-Trent uh, 11, 11 unit commercial conversion and then the second you know, so that was that was kind of midway through um, we, we were wandering around site there was actually works being undertaken as we were walking around and uh, and that was the picture that we got there. The second site we went to uh, was Liverpool Road, uh, Stoke-on-Trent, and, and that's a retail unit currently, and uh, it has planning to retain the retail on the ground floor, but to put an HMO on the upper floor, there's two floors, um, excuse me, it'd be a five, five bed HMO upstairs. However, um, the owner wants to sell for, for his own reasons, but from, from me, when I evaluated this deal, and this is kind of crucial, to take it on as proposed, it's not economically viable. So for me to make this work, I would need to convert it into a 9 or 10 bed HMO. 
So I'm going to work on a nine bed for now as being more conservative in, in what we could get through. Um, we would need to go back to planning uh, and get approval to convert the retail unit into an HMO. Strictly speaking, because it's retail, we wouldn't need planning to convert to an HMO. It'd be covered under permitted development. But because the total building will become a nine bed or more HMO, that in itself will create the need for planning under sewer generous uh, classification. So that's that's one of the solutions that we're looking at going back to planning. There's some evidence or precedent in the area to get HMOs. It's um, it's an area that needs some regeneration, let's say that, um, read between the lines. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll bring bring a property back into use and it will be able to service a hospital and, and uh, a nearby university, um, you know, with, uh, with uh, accommodation. And my plan B, I guess, for that would be to split the property into two and have a four bed and a five bed or two five bed. Um, HMOs um, instead and that would avoid the need for uh, the planning approval but I'd, I'd rather just keep it as a single unit. Just quick insight into the numbers, I'm going to pay about 90000 for it, it's, um, the gross development cost is, is about two hundred and seventy, and the gross development value is just over 300000 so once it gets refinanced out, I'll be looking at a 41% return on investment there. So this is another buy, refurbish, refinance, HMO um, project that I wish to retain in my portfolio. I, I might, um, I might not. <laughs> I might work with a partner on this. I haven't quite decided. Um, I've got a fairly short time scale to complete, but um, just trying to think about what, what I want to do with it. But when we walked around, this was at the beginning stages. So oh, we started with, with a project in the middle stages of, of uh, the works. This particular one on Liverpool Road is at the beginning. In fact, I'm going through the conveyancing process right now uh, with the vendor. And, um, you know, it's interesting because the vendor has spent some money, for example, on um, upgrading the, the shop frontage, you know, literally putting the glass units and the doors and uh, a, an electric shutter, which, of course, unfortunately, would be of no real value to me um, if it became an HMO. So he wants to recover his costs in that respect. Uh, but for me, it's it's kind of a, it's a dead cost. It's not really valuable. So you see how, you know, the hopefully you're starting to see how you have to understand each party's interests so I'm appreciating he wants to recover his costs but at the same time it doesn't really add value to me um, in with my plans and if I were to build out the property as uh, as his planning approval um, in place um, generates it wouldn't be as profitable as in, uh, you know essentially it would be profitable but not as profitable and you can see the number there's pretty good and again I would say that this isn't typical you know, to hit a sort of 41% um, you know, return on investment after refinancing. I'm very happy to take it. Um, and as I say, I work quite hard to try and get some of these projects. And, you know, who knows what it actually will land because it's at the beginning stages. So we, we don't have full visibility of all the costs, which is one of the reasons why I've got a slightly larger contingency in my numbers on that one than I did on the Coronation Courts uh, number uh, projections that I just shared with you. So that was, the, uh, that was the second particular project that we went to um, and had a little walk around there. That was, that was very interesting. And then the third project we went to on the, on the first day was also in Stoke and this was on Newton Street and it's um, a BRR HMO. So <clears throat> another HMO conversion, the distinction between Liverpool Road and Newton Street, Liverpool Road is, a retail, is currently a retail unit. In, in the town centre, whereas the Newton Street properties outside of the town centre, but still in a popular urban area, uh, it was a residential property, um, very large Victorian building, 
I think it was about 3,000 um, 3, square feet um, when I bought it. Um, it was configured as two flats, but basically I converted it into, um, it's now a seven bed HMO. And there's a story because <clears throat> it certainly had the capability of becoming a nine bed HMO, at least uh, just from the existing, uh, existing configuration, converting a garage, for example, and converting a dining room, it could have been a nine bed HMO. And of course, extending it would have allowed me to get maybe a couple more bedrooms in there as well. <clears throat> but as I mentioned, there are other people who have a say in what we do. And in this particular case, the, the planning department decided that they'd only grant me permission for a seven-bed HMO. So part of the reason for sharing that is the actual numbers, which I'll just give you a bit of a heads up on, uh, for the project side, not, you know, you'd be, oh, would you really do that deal? So I'll tell you, um, the gross development cost worked out at about £360,000. And the gross development value was about £305,000. So um, technically, that's a loss, um, about £50,000. So you'd say, why would you do a deal like that? Well, um, the long and short of it, uh, and just to put things perhaps in a more normal context, I suppose, the return on investment once I refinance this property is about 16%. So I tend to look for a minimum of 15%. That's my criteria. So this one's about 16. So uh, it beats my minimum. It could have been a whole lot better. That's my point. So if I'd have got the nine bed approved, I wouldn't have, you know, the, the gross development value would have been, you know, about 100,000 higher, basically. And so I would have turned a, a small sort of project loss into a project profit. And uh, the ROI would have um, been significantly more as well. And, you know, it's a what's and all uh, sharing exercise, really. And, you know, the guys that I'm walking around, they're, they're aware that this is the situation. So we've we've got two sort of, I think, pretty stellar deals, you know, 40 odd percent return on investment after refinancing and one, you know, pretty good one, 16 percent after refinancing. But we took a bit of a knock because we, we didn't get the full planning approval that we were seeking. Although I would say that I reserve the right really to go back and seek planning approval to add in the extra two bedrooms and perhaps do uh, an extension. Uh, I don't think we had permitted development rights taken away um, when we did the conversion. So I may go back subsequently. In fact, one of the things I shared on the day was that, you know, to go from a, a residential property to a nine bed HMO in one hit, it, it it can sometimes be a bit of a stretch to get it through planning. You often get a lot of objections in the local community when you see that. And in fact, I did get a lot of objections and there's a lot of noise. And, you know, people like the highways agency were interested in parking and access, all, all those good things, which is, you know, fair enough. But, um, you know, for I think there was perhaps a bit of a compromise, let's say, because seven beds is, um, I, I don't need planning permission for a six bed and seven bed is just one extra. Uh, but I got the planning approval, sui generis, as I mentioned, for a seven-bed HMO there. Um, so that was a, a small win, but not a big win. But I reserved the right to uh, to fight another day. <laughs> That's my point. Um, that you know, uh, I, and I was talking to the you know the guys who were joining me on site. That essentially, you can go for the six-bed HMO as stage one, and then perhaps go later on for the seven, eight, nine bed or whatever it is you want to do. Uh, which is less of an issue, really, um, from the planning point of view. So whilst there might still be some objections in the local area, if it's already an established HMO uh, with six bedrooms and all you're really asking for is an extra one, two or three bedrooms on top or something of that ilk, then you know it's going to be a lot easier to get it through planning than perhaps going for the, the jump straight into, into nine beds. So 
that's um, that's really essentially what happened uh, with that particular property. Um, so that gives you a bit of an insight there. Then um, just to kind of wrap things up uh, today, we've got another busy day. We've got a bit of driving this time. So all of, oh no, actually just before I go on, sorry, there is a fourth uh, property that I wanted to talk about. And that's because it's not yet one of mine, but my project manager wanted to share with me um, another project opportunity, I suppose, that's come up. And it's a, it's a farm building on the outskirts, it's in, it's the outskirts of uh, Stoke. And um, the owner, you know, has, you know, he, he, He's bought this property, but doesn't have full funding essentially to do what you know all that's capable in it, and you know wanted to introduce me as a potential partner to work with them, and uh, it's a very large you know building, farm building with a lot of outbuildings and around about six or seven acres I think it is of land, so it's quite a different story. So it's not it's, it's sort of a semi-rural area, and it'd be a different vibe I suppose to some of the HMOs or the uh, residential properties that I was uh, talking about earlier. But the, this particular property, um, it's got a farmhouse and it's got planning approval for two four-bedroom properties to convert some of the existing outbuildings. But there's far more potential than that. And that's you know, what we look for, of course, as a developer. So it has a value just to effectively build out what's been approved that we think we can actually achieve uh, betterment with the, uh, with the new planning application. And some of this would actually be under permitted development uh, rights as well. So it could have more than, let's say, more than two additional units. Uh, so we had a little walk around that and that was all very interesting, but I need to do some number crunching and remove any emotion, of course, uh, before proceeding with that one. That kind of rounded off the day in terms of the formalities. Uh, then I spent uh, the evening with one of the apprentices, and we had a couple of couple of jars of ale uh, and a bite to eat, and you know put the world to rights. And that's partly why I'm doing this podcast episode in the morning instead of last night. But there we go. And today to look forward, we've got another day. Um, it's going to be slightly different because we've got a bit more traveling. So there's less sites to visit and they're spread out. Uh, so the first one is in Ripley, Derbyshire. And that's a residential property which has had a garage conversion. And it's now, uh, well, it's been operating actually as serviced accommodation or short-term let accommodation for a couple of years now. And, you know, just do, I don't have the full numbers in the same way that I shared for the other projects, but... The, just to give you some insight um, as to what it could look like, I think the, the annual turnover uh, on the rentals is about 17,000 a year, which compares to round about uh, six, about 6,000 or so for an, an equivalent AST. So uh, it's almost three times the rental income. Um, with service accommodation, you have higher costs, and I normally work on around about 45, 50% deduction from gross rent which compares to around about 25% deduction, 25% deduction on an AST basis. So, uh, but even if you, if you do that analysis, you know, six becomes about four on AST before mortgage costs and eight, sorry, 17,000 becomes about eight and a half-ish um, before mortgage costs on a service accommodation basis. So in other words, it's more profitable. That's what I'm trying to get out. But, you know, it brings its own complexities, uh, not least of which with lenders again. So kind of alluding to the fact that there's different stakeholders that are involved. You've got you, not just, you know, the works team that are involved, the project manager. You've, you've got 
funding of the project you've got funding once you've completed it depending on what your exit is of course and you've got planning and we needed to go and get planning approval for the uh, garage conversion in this particular case because i'm actually sitting in it right now as i talk to you it's a studio um so it's got it's got a bedroom uh slide i wouldn't call it a living area but it's got a couch and a kitchen and a, and a shower room so it's um, it's kind of self-contained and um, we had to go for planning approval because of local neighbor objections. There we go again. So um, someone complained and that got the counts involved. Um, it wouldn't really need planning approval. It should be permitted development rights to do a garage conversion. But because of the self-contained nature, they wanted to kind of get that checked out. And um, what uh, what sort of helped us because it is completely separate it's got a separate access and as I mentioned cooking and uh, um, bathing facilities but it's run from the same utility supply which was the key part, point there um, so we managed to um, win around planning and get approval and uh, it's increased the value so that 17,000 a year rent that I talked about was before we rent out the studio as well. So we've increased the capacity of the unit from a six up sleeps up to six to sleep up to eight. So uh, that's that's what's going on with this particular property. And then a little later on in the day, we're going to take a drive all the way down to Wisbeach in Cambridgeshire. And uh, we'll look at a property there and, and that's going to be so I think pretty much all of the properties I've spoken about so far are properties I intend to keep. Uh, in my portfolio and the one this afternoon we're going to see in Wisbeach is one I intend to flip on and so I'm working with a partner on that one and it's uh, we're going to refurbish it we're going to extend it out it's a bungalow bungalows usually work quite well for flips I find because um, the buyers for bungalows usually want the ready-made product so you can add that value and, and uh, charge us something of a premium once you sell it on um, so that's what we're going to do there. But um, one of the things that kind of cropped up there is, uh, and in fact, not just there, it's been a recurring theme of late, just to flag it to you, is asbestos. You know, the, in this particular property in Wisbeach, there was a lot of asbestos. It was built in around about the 70s and asbestos was seen as a wonder product around about that sort of time. So, you know, pretty much everywhere, floor tiles, um, heating cylinder insulation, uh, ceiling tiles and Artex paint and uh, insulation, all of it contained asbestos. So it's, uh, it's pretty nasty, can be pretty nasty. Um, there's different grades of asbestos, so don't be too afraid when you hear the word and, and maybe get if, if somebody suspects there's asbestos, get a, a professional in there to give you an assessment. Uh, and we, we were actually shocked here because I think initially we were quoted something like £30,000 to rid the entire property of asbestos. Um, and we've managed to get that down below, I think about 4000 in the end was the, the cost to get it removed. Um, and that's because of various things. One is the some of the worst stuff. We're not actually. If you don't touch asbestos, it's okay. Uh, it's when you start touching it, then the cost can can come in. And there's also these different grades of asbestos. Um, some of it can be removed relatively simply, obviously using protective gear. But other of it, you know, you actually need to, you know, have the white tent and the men in the white suits. That's when you start looking at thirty thousand level. So we decided not to do the garage conversion and other bits and pieces that we could have done, which would have involved touching a lot of asbestos because it just wouldn't have been viable for us to do that. So there you go, essentially. There, this the two days, and you know, it's part of the reason why I'm sort of talking to you as I am, where I am, at the time I am, because um, I'm out on the road quite a bit, and you know, my, as I mentioned, my body clock's a little bit all over, all over the place because of the different time zones that I've been flipping uh, from over the last couple of weeks. But um, I guess if I can draw some summaries, uh, if they didn't come out already, um, 
over the couple of last couple of days, one of the key points is the role of a developer. So my role, essentially. So there's lots of people who help me. Um, you know, so I have a, a project manager and I have a planning consultant, I have an architect, etc. And they can tell me what I call the art of the possible. But it's my role to actually commercialize that. Um, and so make a decision as to what is the best scheme to actually run with. Uh, so some of these projects we've talked about, uh, I've actually added, so seen a way to add value, for example, adding on extra units at the Coronation Court, uh, converting an existing planning at the Liverpool Road from retail and HMO to full HMO, or um, indeed with the Wisbeach pro uh, project, which could have been a, a very substantial two extension, one garage conversion refurb into just one extension uh, refurb project and, you know, get a lower GDV, but lower cost as well, and therefore lower risk. So what I'm trying to illustrate is the role of the developer is to commercialize a project, but it's also also to visualize a project as well. So you're looking beyond, and you know, a lot of people walk into places, and some of the places we walked into yesterday, particularly the Liverpool Road one right at the beginning, it looked pretty rubbish, in all honesty. It, it didn't look great, and it was um, in need of TLC. And a lot of people would just walk in there and they just see this grotty you know, place and wouldn't be able to see through that and visualize what it could become uh, with just you know, clearing the place out, getting into a blank canvas and you know, bringing it back up to, to what we would think would be a nice nine bedroom HMO in a good location. So, um, to, so two things really, commercialize and visualize. So the role of a developer came out yesterday quite clearly. Another one you've probably detected from the way I've been talking is dealing with issues that arise on site. So asbestos, uh, you know, we, we're, I'm starting to call my project manager the ready brick kid because, you know, when he goes around, he's probably glowing because of all the asbestos. I know it's not a hazardous substance in that sense, but just a little joke that we have. Um, so we tend to look for asbestos these days and, and, and then work around it and get it tested, etc. and work, um, you know, identify what we're dealing with. Uh, so that that's prevalent. You just need to be careful with that, uh, particularly in properties built around about 50s to 70s and 80s type of uh, timescale. Uh, groundwork issues. I mentioned the uh, whilst we're on site yesterday, um, the underpinning is issue, and also the discovery of a. I can't remember if I actually mentioned here, but there was a discovery of a of a kiln, uh, a bottle kiln underneath the property at Coronation Court, and. Um, that resulted, in, it was like three meters on the ground. We had to dig it out a long way. We had to put concrete piles in to stabilize the foundations uh, of what would be an extension and also to underpin part of the building. So there's quite a significant uh, workaround that we had to do there. And in fact, that pushed the project costs up as well to be totally transparent with you. Um, then there was other issues, um, you know, getting utilities onto site, particularly when you talk about development. Even if you don't have utilities supplied or they're not of the right capacity, you need to involve the uh, utility suppliers. And there's no sort of set price list, if you like, of uh, getting uh, electric supply to a site, for example. And indeed, we were quoted something like £30,000 to get electric supply to Coronation Court. You know, involved um, digging up the road, closing it off for you know at least half a day, uh, and laying a cable you know into our property, and we were quoted thirty thousand pounds for that. Well, you know, part of the job is to find a workaround, so that's what we're doing. We've got part solar uh, supply, which helps. We've also we do need um, you know supply f uh, from the mains as well, but we're looking at an alternative route, which would be a lot less expensive to um, implement than thirty thousand pounds. 
So that's something that can come up. It's quite a shock when it does, but you need to have resilience and deal with these things when they do. And then, you know, not all projects go 100% to plan. And in fact, I was talking to a partner of mine the other day. He said, I'm not sure any project's gone 100% to plan. Um, now, it doesn't necessarily mean they're failures. It just means that things happen on projects. And that's why, you know, being a developer is not for everybody because things do happen. The unexpected can happen. That's part of the reason why I have a contingency line in all of the numbers I'm working on. Uh, it's also, you know, uh, just to lead into the final point, really, I wanted to summarize in the, this section, you know, the, the seven bed HMO that I ended up with because being not back from planning from the nine bed down to seven bed actually meant, you know, the, pro the project wasn't quite as profitable, um, you know, at, at the project phase as it might have been. So that was the one, if you remember, at 16% ROI. And trust me, the numbers would be a lot better if it was a nine bed HMO. So these are some of the realities and this is what we're able to share on the day. Then of course you've got the value of a great project manager. So I do have a great project manager and I've worked with other good project managers in the past and they can be worth their weight in gold. Uh, trust me on that. So get someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, if that's not you, for example, you're more of a numbers person or a people person uh, rather than a property person, get someone who understands a property to work closely with you and uh, they will return, you know, you know, return back to you many folds, many times over. I guess the other learning for me is that how to run a day like this, really. Um, it took some feedback from the guys and, you know, a couple of improvement suggestions. I didn't have maps, for example. Um, not sure I'll ever have maps, but, you know, just to get the organization side of it, that's not really my forte, let's say. But, you know, you know, things like sharing the financials on the day of the sites that you're going to look at was, was quite a good piece of feedback. So I put that right this morning and sent it across to them. So just learning how to run such a day. So there you go, really. Just thought I'd share that with you. And, uh, I guess the point being, if you like the idea of, you know, perhaps getting involved in a day like that and, you know, looking at some of the projects, I do about eight to 12 projects a year. Of course, I've got different projects which are in the works phase or there are different phases, you know, acquisition, contract select, contractor selection, works, refinancing or an exit, whatever that would be, sale or uh, letting, <coughs> excuse me, then, um, you know, that's what I do on a consistent basis. That's my life. And so if it, you know, that, that uh, appeals to you, then maybe drop a line. But you know, just to make it clear, I, I don't do what you know, some other people call investor days. So I don't literally have busloads of people and charge a few hundred pounds um, you know, and have a sort of a formal gig and kind of monetize it, if I can call it that. It's not really the way I work. Um, but I do like to invite people from what I call my inner circle to come and join me. And, you know, those are the people that I mentor or maybe they're part of the uh, TPV Apprentice program. Uh, people who invest with me, uh, either as private funders, earn and learn investors or even join venture partners. Because, you know, I really just like to work with just a small number of people uh, at any one point in time who I can get to know well and, you know, I can give personal attention to rather than kind of monetizing the day just for in its own right and just having busloads of people as I mentioned coming through like several times a, a month or a, or a quarter or whatever anyway I digress so if you like the idea of lift, uh, lifting the hood on some of the projects or the 8 to 12 projects that I run a year then just get in touch and we can just talk about how that might look uh, from my point of view because as I say I don't just do this as a thing maybe I should but I just, just don't <laughs> more from a lifestyle point of view I suppose so there we go then. Hopefully that's been interesting. Bit of an insight. Um, I tried to give you some flavours of the projects that we're looking at, some of the numbers. 
and how the day went really so hopefully that's been of interest to you but I guess, you know, as always, the show notes are going to be available at our website, thepropertyvoice.net, uh, including how you can reach me in various ways. Or if you want to talk about anything from today's show, or just talk about property investing more generally, you know you can always email me personally, uh, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, and I'll answer your message personally. It'll be great to hear from you. But all, all that's left to say right now is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.